Welcome everyone to POV Crypto, the only podcast that both Bitcoiners and Ethereans listen to. I'm David Hoffman, here with my buddy Christian. Christian, how you doing? Doing good, man. It is beautiful outside. I'm excited. It's Friday and a long weekend is coming up. We just recorded a fantastic episode with the one and only Dan Held. He uh, took some time out of his really busy day to chat with us for an, an entire hour and kind of really get into how Bitcoin security works and why Bitcoin security is so strong. So this episode came out of the Binance hack. Uh, and I right after the, the Binance hack, I took to, to Twitter to voice my opinions. And uh, a number of, um, of them got, um, got some traction in the world. And they were all about how uh, the game theory around CZ and the, the possibility of uh, rolling back the chain it was really, really interesting and illustrates what I think is a security flaw in the Bitcoin blockchain, where CZ announces that they decided to not roll back the chain, which uh, because they didn't want to harm the integrity of Bitcoin. And I'm like, no, not trying to roll back the, the chain implies that it would have worked and you fucked it up by not trying. Uh, and so we kind of go through this uh, this Twitter uh, conversation that that Dan and I had, uh, and this is how Dan came on the podcast. Was he him and I started arguing in, in the threads, and I said like, "Yo, Dan, let's hash this out on POV Crypto," and and here we are. I don't want to spend too much time dispelling uh, everything that you just said because this entire episode does that pretty much. Uh, so without <laughs> further ado, Dan Held. Dan Held, welcome to POV Crypto. Thanks for having me on, guys. So before we get started in uh, our little argument, uh, can you kind of give our listeners a background with uh, your beginnings in crypto, your beginnings in Bitcoin, and, and any other academic disciplines that you started with and any other interests that you have related? Sure. Yeah, I, I got started back in uh, in Bitcoin in 2012. Uh, my buddy paid me back for a beer with a Casatius coin, uh, the coin that everyone's a really cheesy looking, shiny Bitcoin that we constantly are reminded of. In every single news article, <laughs> it seems to be the the favorite stock image. Um, I got paid back for a beer with that coin, and uh, started to go down the rabbit hole of like, okay, there was a, you know, there's a emporium online called the Silk Road where you can buy stuff that's illegal. Well, that's that's interesting. Uh, how's that enabled? How is that possible? And kind of went down the rabbit hole of reading more about Bitcoin, and then. Um, so that kind of sparked my interest in Bitcoin, and that's how I kind of went, got started. Uh, you know, Bitcoin QT was my first wallet. <laughs> so, uh, the space has come a long way since then. Um, and then in January 2013, I worked at a small investment firm that relocated me to San Francisco. Uh, there I got really connected with the Bitcoin uh, kind of core community, which was the meetup at 20 Mission. Uh, the 20 Mission meetup had like Jesse Powell and Brian and Fred Armstrong from uh Coinbase and Charlie Lee and you know at that time there's only like 15 of us and then March 2013 hit and the price went from $10 to 260 and all of a sudden there was you know 150 people and it was in that moment in the May or the, in the uh, March 2013 run-up that I decided to build my first product which was called Zero Block. And Zero Block uh, essentially uh, solved the pain point because at the time there was no app with real-time Bitcoin pricing data. So we built uh, a really, uh, ZeroBlock became one of the most popular kind of like price checker apps that people used in 2013. And then we got acquired by blockchain.com in December, 2013. And I came on board there as the first PM. Uh, zoom forward a bit. 
I worked at a couple other crypto startups and then I was at Uber for two years. And then now I'm back building accounting software for institutional trading infrastructure. And that's called Interchange. Very cool. So you've been in Bitcoin before there were other protocols to pay attention to. So can you kind of also <laughs> illustrate to our listeners why you've stuck around Bitcoin and and, um, and also perhaps illustrate your level of anti-other blockchains? Uh, are you open to uh, other chains existing? Are you, uh, you're a, uh, do you envision a multi-chain future? And everyone kind of is on a different spectrum with this answer, right? And so like, where are you yeah. on that spectrum? It's a good question. Um, I consider myself a Bitcoin realist. I think like Lily Lulu uses that term as well. I'm excited about other protocols. I I want to be I want to be more excited. However, you know when I, I simply provide the same framework that I have for evaluating Bitcoin's survivability, monetary policy, and X Y Z, and when I use that framework and then apply that to other coins very many of them aren't, inter aren't interesting after I do that. So it's not that I'm closed-minded, that I'm not open to new coins. It's more of, I have such a high standard that I don't find, I find very, very few interesting. And so what are some of those standards? Like what would a chain need to, what, what are the prerequisites that a chain needs to have for you to be like, hmm, that's worthwhile and interesting and I'm glad that's here? Yeah, you've got to have a, like a hard cap on the supply. Um, you've got to have proof of work. You have to have what I would perceive as a semi-fair launch or no pre-mine, um, which that pre-mining was a terminology in 2014 that was popular um, with like the whole kind of first wave of altcoins. So like those would be some, um, you know, the, the what, what Bitcoin really is, is it's a social network that's enabled by code, right? So the code incentivizes and keeps all the participants in the social network aligned. Um, and Bitcoin demonstrated through several moments its rigor and it's the rigor and intensity and the and the strength of its social network um, with the people in it. And so I, I don't see as many other communities as strong as Bitcoin's. And Bitcoin went through some pretty intense political events, you know, like Segwit2x and Bcash hard fork, to where I'm. It's pretty amazing that it survived. So. You know, when looking at these other coins from that perspective, I think a lot of them have a really long ways to go until I think they can really be stacked. You know, you can put them next to Bitcoin and be like, these are equivalent or these are as interesting. Yeah, you mentioned two things there, uh, that it, the chain has to be proof of work and there has to be a hard cap. And that's exactly what I want to talk about on this episode. Uh, and that bleeds into how we got started with uh, you coming on POV in, in the first place. So I want to go back and, and go through the four tweet tweet thread that I made after uh, CZ released that video saying that um, they're deciding to not attempt to bribe the miners to roll back the chain. And so what I said is that there are three game theoretical outcomes if CZ tries to roll back Bitcoin. One is the hacker then just returns to, to, the, to, the, to, the, to the game and then outbids CZ. So if CZ goes to the chain uh, or the block that the uh, Bitcoins were, were stolen from and, and then removed from the Binance wallet into the hacker's wallet, CZ comes in and exposes those private keys and a game is, is set up where miners can go roll back the chain and, for, and uh, mine a different chain where they get some of the Bitcoins uh, from that wallet and then CZ gets some of the other Bitcoins and there's some percentage as to who gets who. Um, 
And so if, if CZ does that, then the miner or the, the, uh, the hackers can also bid for that. And so because they also have uh, the, the private keys of that wallet, they are able to just rebid uh, against CZ. So CZ is like, all right, miners, out of the 7,000 Bitcoins that get stolen, you get 3,500, I get 3,500, and you know, roll back the chain to this point. Or the hacker would be like, all right, miners, because CZ did this, you get 4,000 Bitcoins and we'll get 3,000 Bitcoins. And, and then you roll back, you, we can roll back the chain if, if you roll back the chain. And so it, they, it would incentivize that to not happen for them to not take the CZ bribe. And then CZ and the hackers will bid themselves into only sending money to the miners because they, they're trying to um, use all of the capital as, as, that's available to them. And eventually it's going to come down to zero where, you know, Bitcoin or the, the hackers and CZ are bidding over for just a few Bitcoins and the, everything, all the f uh, everything left goes to the miners. So that's one outcome. Uh, and then the second outcome is the hackers don't try and outbid CZ and the chain does get rolled, rolled back because of the rational outcome of profit seeking miners. If the miners uh, can receive more Bitcoins by rolling back the chain to the block where CZ exposed the private keys, they would get more money and it would be uh, economically rational to do so, taking into account that we might threaten the price of Bitcoin by ruining its trust, but that's a, that's a separate argument. And then the third outcome is either miners or CZ don't want to threaten uh, Bitcoin's uh, precedence of immutability by testing its security in an attempt to roll back the blockchain, which is implying that it, we could roll it back. And so my criticism of CZ here is that he elected to not roll back the chain so he, that he wouldn't destroy Bitcoin's uh, precedence, like his, the, its, its precedence of never, ever being rolled back, which implies that you could have done so. And the fact that CZ, that you are implying that you could have done so means that CZ needs to attempt to do it in order so that he will fail. And then Bitcoin's uh, immutability um precedence is preserved and the cool thing that i thought could have been could have been done is that it, it would be no cost to cz either way cz was out seven thousand bitcoins if he attempted to roll back and failed or if he didn't attempt to roll back and fail so why don't we try this out um, and at the end of the day if cz does attempt to roll back and fails the seven thousand bitcoins go from the hackers to the miners uh in either way yeah. unless the miners reject the the proposal to roll back the blockchain. And so it's taking the Bitcoins out of the hands of the hackers who don't deserve it to the miners who deserve it at least more than the hackers. And so this is kind of my thought process. So, so it's the, the claim is that this is Bitcoin isn't only secured by proof of work, but is also uh, secured by the general consensus that we don't do this, which means it's a social contract, which is what you said which is how I decided to make this transition, that Bitcoin is actually significantly governed by a social contract rather than just proof of work, which isn't really the level of security that we want. Uh, I'm not sure if I said exactly that. I said that like Bitcoin as a money is like a social a social like network. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, I mean, let's dive into it. One, I think like, yeah, you should have tried. <laughs> I, uh I believe in field testing the protocol and let's, let's have at it. Yeah. But I, I agree. Like someone should try. Um, I don't think it'll succeed, but someone should try. Um, 
I think it's kind of foolish to just look at minors like self-interest with just like the, the payout. It's say like instead of the hacker getting the coins, now the miners do. Miners are financially motivated, and that's the you know we should only view their their sort of behavior based on financial incentive, right? But they have a long-term financial incentive. They bought these ASICs, and they're gonna these machines. Uh, they've they've they bought ASICs. They've got capex, and they've got the opex where they've renegotiated electricity. If they roll back a transaction or do something funky, and that causes uh, people to lose that faith in Bitcoin, then yeah, we, we'd probably see a, a significant decline in the price, which would impact the margins. So, you know, I think we need to evaluate. Yeah, sure, you can pay them with like a short-term bribe. And by the way, this isn't like a double spend, really. This is more of CZ going, "Hey, I'd like to burn my money, please." Um, so this isn't like a, a this isn't really like a double spend uh, attack. This is more of Hey, instead of this other party getting this, I'd like to give it all to the miners. Um, so even if it had worked, it's not like a double spend. This isn't like trying. This isn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't consider it a hugely devastating move. But I, I still don't think it's a likely situation. Miners have long-term profits in mind. They're not going to play short-term games, especially if that undermines the confidence of the protocol. Yeah, and and I totally see that that concept where you know money is a faith system, and we don't want to puncture that faith. Um, but we've also seen other blockchains get fifty one percent attacked, or rolled back, or have some sort of immutability uh, violation, and those chains didn't lose too much value. Like Ethereum Classic didn't lose too much value. Granted, Bitcoin is its own special, unique case, but that is. I'm until that actually does get tested, it's really just hypothesis, right? Like we're kind of just hypothesizing that Bitcoin will go down in price. And we don't really know how much of Bitcoin's price is really a function of uh, its perceived level of security. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, we could, I guess you, you could, you could apply the uh, rationale that with other 51% attacks, this isn't a 51% attack, but like with other 51% right. attacks and other chains, the price didn't decline nearly as much as we thought it would. Um, I think that's because like a lot of those chains are basically, you know, what was that Bitcoin gold and uh, forget the other one. Um, I mean, those are just, they're all pretty forgettable. Yeah. They're all pretty forgettable. I mean, it's people are just pumping and dumping there there's not a lot of like faith or belief in that Bitcoin gold is going to be a big chain someday. So people holding that were mainly just there to pump and dump um, versus Bitcoin. I think, you know, Bitcoin being the leader, Bitcoin being the longest running, strongest, highest, you know, network effect, et cetera. I think that would probably be uh, a more devastating blow in terms of price impact. But it is interesting to bring up those other ones because we could look at that as an example of, well, even in, with these 51% attacks, their prices didn't drop that much. So maybe it wouldn't be that devastating for Bitcoin, but I, it's it's hard to tell until it happens, you know? Yeah, it's actually something that uh, Pierre Richard kind of talks about. He brings up the point that like we don't really know what is enough security and there's a lot of cases that show that even a double spend attack is largely a local thing, not really even a systemic wide failure, right? Um, so in the worst case scenario where, you know, there is successful 51% uh, attack to some degree, like it really doesn't affect, you know, the majority of people. Yeah, I mean, it just affects like the newest transactions. Um, and if there's concern over transactions being 51% attack, then simply you can wait um, it doesn't, you know, the, the true value of Bitcoin lies in the ledger, right? Like in the UTXO set, each one of us who have stored our real world time and energy, aka money, 
and stored that into Bitcoin, you know, we're not just going to, you know, when if some Bitcoin gets 51% attacked or if there's issues with the chain, like we've stored our time and energy in that ledger. So, you know, that the preservation of that ledger in, in terms of its historical state is, the, you know, essentially means that even with the 51% attack, like the historical state as of, as a, cert, as of a certain moment, um, that state would largely be the shared collective faith or the shared collective belief in that in that chain. Um, so 51% attacks really aren't that devastating uh, as we've seen with the other kind of weaker proof of work chains where that happened. And, and a lot of this is kind of illustrating what, or at least I think it is, so correct me if I'm wrong, illustrating that a, a decent amount of Bitcoin security comes from the agreement to not roll back the chain because no one wants to violate the value of Bitcoin, which which is a which is a real security mechanism, but it's fundamentally different from cryptographic security, uh, where we have this social consensus security rather than rather than provable security, and this is kind of what concerns me with um, the Bitcoin issuance uh, uh, supply supply issuance. Uh, uh, monetary policy. What's the word I'm looking for here? Yeah, supply schedule. Supply schedule. So you know, seven thousand bitcoins is the the number where this conversation crops up at. Um, but every time the the happening happens, all of a sudden the number of bitcoins uh, needed to incentivize the rollback of the miners, if that is if that is possible, and now we don't know because CZ didn't do it. But say there's is a number somewhere kind of what Christian alluded to, like we don't know the level of security of the blockchain. So we don't really know how many Bitcoins it would take to roll back to roll back blocks. Um, but I would I would suggest that right now it's around the ballpark of 7000 Bitcoins. But every time there's a block reward issuance, that number also gets cut. Uh, and so this is kind of a, a criticism of the fee market, right? And so I, I looked, I did, I couldn't find too much data on this because I can only really find um, block uh, block fee block fees based in U.S. dollar and not in Bitcoin terms, except for this one website which lists like the last like five or six blocks. And I've looked three different times, and it's all about between one and one point five bitcoins per block that is accrued in fees, which means that. In the future, when we're running on the th- on a, a fee market, for every one to one and a half bitcoins that you have, you can roll back the blockchain by one block. And so, well, and, a, and, and to be clear, like you're not rolling back a whole block, you would be or incentivizing the miners to incentivizing the miner to to burn all of your give all of your money to them instead mm-hmm. of giving it to someone else, and that's an individual transaction, not every other transaction that occurred. Right, right. With you have enough capital to. Uh, reward a miner with more money than they would have gotten by mining the normal chain. Yeah, essentially, like the hypothetical situation is that you want to burn your money instead of someone mm-hmm. else getting it. True. Yes, you. There is money being burned here. Um, yeah. Specifically, the 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 person incentivizing the rollback, and so uh, I think I think there was like a window of four to five days for CZ to have this capital. Uh, uh, opportunity where the capital that he had, or at least he used to have in a previous block, could have rationally uh, or could have incentivized a uh, rational economic actor, the miner, to roll back the blockchain to that block. Well, every time the the happening happens, that window gets larger and larger and larger. And so, you know, four days now will have been seven thousand days if this hack had happened in like twenty one hundred. No, no. I mean, you got to think about it more in like terms of U.S. dollars. People have to buy ASICs and buy electricity in dollar value, right? Like they don't buy mm-hmm. it in Bitcoin. 
And so the dollar value, since that unit of account is more stable than Bitcoin's, I think that's the preferable way to think through this. Um, I mean, even with all, we've had a couple of happenings already, even with happenings happening, the amount of uh, annual spend on mining has exponentially increased, even though happening events are continually dropping the supply by half. So we've seen the US dollar, like thermodynamic guarantee for Bitcoin's proof of work security increase exponentially, even as the happening events have occurred um, because Bitcoin's price increases. And then over time as well, we've seen transaction fees become a larger percentage of the block reward. Uh, so we're definitely seeing, so we're seeing transaction fees become a larger percentage of the block reward while simultaneously seeing the amount of US dollars spent annually on mining increase exponentially. So I think those are all positive signs for a fee market in the future. No, so it's actually the US dollar metric that I want to get away from uh, because miners are rewarded in Bitcoins, not in US dollar. And so the attack, like I, I'm totally on board with the potential that Bitcoin has to survive any attack from an outside uh, entity, which would mean that the outside entity is using US dollars to attack Bitcoin. What I'm worried about is that any Joe Schmo that has any meaningful amount of Bitcoin can roll back the chain in the future when all that is securing the chain are fees denominated in Bitcoin. And so we can actually, in, in my head, we can just leave whatever value of Bitcoin is out of it. And so like even when you were saying that, that miners are allocating more and more US dollar to secure the blockchain, I want to know is that are they actually using more Bitcoins to secure the blockchain? Because if Bitcoin is going up and up and up in value, well, then the ratio of security uh, paid for by Bitcoins versus provided by Bitcoins is actually not changing. Essentially, what you're saying is that buying power doesn't matter. And then you said that buying power matters at the end. But buying power, Bitcoin uh, buying US power. dollars, yeah, US dollars is just a measure of buying power. So here's an example. Yeah. The current block award is 12.5 Bitcoin. The current price is around $8,000. So about $100,000 of uh, per block reward, right? So now if it gets mm -hmm. split in half, but Bitcoin 10Xs all to 80K, now all of a sudden the block reward is $500,000, okay? So in terms but of- But it's the same amount of Bitcoin. So but Bitcoins changes how much buying power it has. So you have to take that into account that the buying power of Bitcoin is not stagnant. So that's a very important factor that you have to measure here. So, you know, given a different buying power of Bitcoin, it might not matter in terms of like, saying, you know, like Bitcoin could pay out miners a lot more in buying power in the future. You're saying that like, because whoever's burning their Bitcoins in order to roll back this train could have, is burning a lot more because it has more buying power. That's what you're saying? You're saying that the per Bitcoin as a unit of account will have more purchasing power in the future, right? I mean, I guess what I'm trying to say is that block reward splitting doesn't imply that the block rewards buying power is splitting. It's just denomination in Bitcoin is splitting. It's right. buying power has been going up exponentially, essentially, even though the Bitcoin denominated number has been going down. Uh, that's all I'm saying. In terms of someone who has 50 Bitcoin, who's going to try to spend 50 Bitcoin to roll back a chain that is denominated, that has about, you know, maybe uh, three Bitcoin in terms of fees plus mining reward. Um, that's an economic decision that they have to make to burn that money, right? And destroy their economic system. And in the future, let's say Bitcoin is worth a lot more and that 50 Bitcoin is an enormous amount of money. You know, again, the game theory aspect kicks into play. So why would they even do that? Um, you know, there are malicious governments and stuff like that, but you just have to expect that 
there's just so much more economic activity and stuff happening on Bitcoin. It's just a lot more important at that point. Um, you know, again, you're seeing the game theory with CZ being unable to, you know, do it and being unwilling to do it. You know, those are real factors. No, he didn't try. Yeah. And I think, you know, as well, we have to remember, like we have to think about in the future, what ASICs will look like um, as we approach the, the limits of physics, ASIC improvement will essentially halt and sometime over the next couple of decades. Um, you know, I, I, as we see, like the nanometer size gets so small and the chips get so efficient that there's just very, very little to squeeze out of it. Um, what will happen is that the, the cost, and so then you amortize essentially the cost of the miner over a very long time period. So essentially you're running that ASIC, you know, you're hoping that I think ASICs will be built to last maybe, you know, like decades. Uh, and so, and then you're trying to eke out, of course, trying to find the cheapest electricity. Um, but with that, yeah, when you have your mining equipment, when the cash flows, like you have that upfront expense and then the cash flows come over a really long duration, you're going to want to preserve the integrity of the chain any way you can. So again, I don't think miners will want to play short-term games uh, because they have long-term cash flows to look out for. Okay. So I want to, that, that's the, uh, that's the, but that's the 51% attack doesn't harm the chain argument, right? And so like, and it, which is an unknown. And so like, I, I'm with you, all of that makes sense. It's just something that we haven't seen out in the field yet. Well, unless, I, I unless this is more like, this is more of the core argument that like miners would be willing to play short-term games, right? But I, I, I doubt that they'll do that at the risk of their future cash flows, aka, will the price of Bitcoin drop if they did something like this? Um, and also it's, it's <laughs> this isn't like, this isn't like rolling back other people's transactions. They're simply burning their money. So it's like a right. very specific type of transaction. Um, mm -hmm. And the reward is, <laughs> there's not really a reward for the transactor. <laughs> they're just burning their money. It's not like, a, you know, I'm not sure how they would financially benefit from that situation. Well, in the case of CZ, he would have financially benefited because he would have like kept 2000 Bitcoins and paid 5000 to the miner or some ratio. And then the, the loss of funds would have been mitigated. From my understanding, they want, you know, it was, he would give them all the coins, the miners, all the coins. I, I wasn't if if the hacker also decided to play the game yeah debating war yeah i mean which you would probably yeah you probably would and then like i think miners i could see miners I, I don't see them really doing this but let's let's say hypothetically the miners are like okay let's do this i think and, and hypothetically you get them all to agree <laughs> and hypothetically they're willing to risk their future cash flows um you know, I, I don't think they would be okay at all with CZ keeping any of the funds. I think it's an all or nothing. Like if you're going to, if you're going to do something like that, you can't, <laughs> you can't allow someone to keep their coin. Right. Because then it's just CZ using Bitcoin as he sees fit. Yeah, exactly. That would definitely destroy the price. That would be, if the miners colluded to do something like that, that they'd be shooting themselves in the foot. You know, Bitcoin would drop like 30% overnight. So one thing I'm worried about is kind of what I said earlier, where the number of Bitcoins required to do this goes down and down and down over time. Yeah, so but the one thing I'm worried about it goes up and up and up. That's why you have to have dollars. Because BTC as a unit of account is a weird way to measure. I don't think you have to have dollars though, because like so imagine like Bitcoin has this ten trillion, hundred trillion dollar market cap. Yeah. It's been it's and the the 
block reward issuance goes down, down, down over time as the Bitcoin price goes up and up and up and the Bitcoin buying power goes up and up and up. Well, what, what was happening is we're, we're teetering this massive, massive market cap based upon this smaller and smaller foundation. No, unless it's, not, the, it's not that at all. The, the, the security spend most accurately is priced in dollars because the, the pur- purchasing power of a Bitcoin fluctuates wildly. So mm-hmm. the purchasing power of the U.S. dollar is the way to to kind of equivalent sort of how much security spend is happening because that's a much more stable unit of account for us to measure historical and projected future uh, security spend. And in the future, like the, based on some of the models that I did, it looks like transaction fees as a percentage of the market cap are trending to about about 0.001% of Bitcoin's market cap daily. Um, so 0.365. So, yeah, uh, like one third of a percent of Bitcoin's market cap, at, at, you know, kind of in finality. Um, mm-hmm. And is that number changing? Do you know? It's uh, what do you mean by changing? Like going up, going down, staying the same. Yeah. Transaction fees as a percentage of the market cap fluctuate with market cycles. Uh, whereas. Um, so you see definitely like mm-hmm. oscillations. Right. right. And that that is a valid concern around the oscillations that the oscillations will potentially create you know that sort of variability in the cash flows and that would create variability in the security spend but if we look at and we can touch on that here in a minute but if we look at long term you know 0.365% of bitcoins let's say 100 trillion market cap is 360 billion dollars annually spent on security that's pretty fucking secure it's not teetering it's not falling over that's 365 billion dollars um, and that's our best projections of what we have now. It's totally a guess, but it, it's the trend in terms of where it's trending. Uh, so that I would consider extremely secure. So yeah, the US dollar number sounds really, really secure, but I'm just worried about that same US dollar number not moving to keep up with the total market cap of Bitcoin at large. And so like if $360 million, what was the number? Uh, it's like $365 billion billion a year yeah yeah so like if hyper bitcoinization happens like like some bitcoiners are hoping it will and we see bitcoin being the unit of of account everywhere we're seeing like i I don't know like 200 trillion dollar bitcoin and like 2100 or something sure the the number of uh the amount of u.s dollar based uh bitcoin security needs to remain at some sort of of you know, it needs to grow in proportion to it. Otherwise, it, the the market cap of Bitcoin be, rests on a smaller and smaller foundation. Well, and, it, and it, it's been trending upwards. Transaction fees as a percentage of market cap, which is what you're worried about, right? That's the ultimate. In mm-hmm. a transaction fee only, in a, in a fee market where there's only transaction fees, as a percentage of the market cap, is that declining or is that increasing? And we see that increasing. Okay. So, and that's increasing. That does make me feel better. Yeah, that's increasing towards that 0.001% daily, daily uh, percentage of market cap. So it's trend. Or look again; these are all projections, right? So I don't want to mm-hmm. over overemphasize how you know <laughs> this, these are projections, and it's kind of our best shot at kind of. Uh, not many people have written about this before, so it's got, I did my best job at kind of eyeballing where it might be. Um, mm-hmm. Yes, if that as long as it doesn't trend down, if we saw the opposite trend, which is what you're worried about, like transaction fees as a percentage of market cap dropping, then yes, there would be an issue. But we see it trending the opposite way; it's increasing as a percentage of the market cap. So I'm I'm still stuck on the whole 
buying power thing and and I, I i do understand that that it you are burning more total value as the price of bitcoin goes up but it, i i still can't just wrap my head around and maybe i'm just missing something but i just can't can't get my head around the fact that Bic, the block reward halving gets cut in half which means that the buying power of a bitcoin per for in comparison to a block reward doubles and so, like leaving out when US the price doubles, value, the buying power doubles. Not when the block. Will, no, 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 no. no. Let's leave. Let's leave the U.S. dollar value out of it. When there's less Bitcoin issued per block, that's a the the amount of Bitcoin the the security of that one particular block gets cut in half minus fees. And so, if you had you know one or ten or hundred Bitcoins prior, all of a sudden the cost of of that the security of that one block in relation to how much buying power you had just doubled. So you have a the double amount of buying power compared to that one block because that one block's fees just got cut in half plus fees. The block reward right now is like 14 Bitcoin, including the uh, uh, a one one Bitcoin worth of fees, right? So why isn't anyone with 50 Bitcoin just attacking it or 7,000 Bitcoin? A lot of people have that. Why are they not doing it? If Bitcoin becomes more yeah, impo important, why would anyone have the incentive to do it? Well, so this is... This is what I'm trying trying the point that what I'm trying to point out is that it's not happening because everyone has just agreed to not do it, which is not cryptographic security. It's just everyone saying like, yeah, we're not going to do this thing. And that that doesn't sound super secure to me. I mean, I, I still don't know why we're hung up on <laughs> hung up on the Bitcoin value or the, sorry, the Bitcoin denominated in Bitcoin, because mm -hmm. we don't Bitcoin's not a good stable unit of account right now. So if we want to evaluate historical and future projected security spend, we have to do it in a stable unit of account. It could be euros or something else. But um, but isn't that just more relevant for Bitcoin shrugging off an attack from outside, not inside? I'm worried about an attack from inside the inside blockchain. It's inside because not... it's the most the unit of account by definition. You know, is essentially what what measure of purchasing power would it cost to right. attack the chain? Reference. Yeah, yeah, it's a reference. Um. So that's why I use it. It's the only stable reference we have because Bitcoin's purchasing power has increased so so much since the beginning that trying to to look at it and priced in Bitcoin units that is just makes the math and makes kind of a, the analysis a little. But funky. that's but that's what miners are incentivized by. Miners They're are incentivized by the purchasing power of a Bitcoin, right? By by the, the transaction yeah. fee paid in Bitcoin, right? But if we want to evaluate like how much the purchasing power of that Bitcoin is. We have to look externally to that value, right? I guess so. Yeah, you could you could do trains, euros, yen, whatever you want, but there has to be some sort of external unit of account for us to kind of evaluate the purchasing power that's required to attack the chain. Understood. Okay, uh, I need to chew, I need to chew on this for a while. Christian, you want to take over? We kind of hit on a bunch of different things here. I guess I would love to kind of jump into like what other kind of like major misconceptions are there about the block ward, about security, things that. Uh, that you know you constantly hear come up outside of this specific example that David's bringing up, and uh, how would you address those? <laughs> My jury is still out. <laughs> <laughs> you know, to write this article took a tremendous. I, I kind of underestimated how many different rabbit, rabbit holes I'd have to go down. Um, everything from like, is Bitcoin's block space unique, or is it a commodity? Um, how about transactional demand for that block space in the future? Uh, what's the purpose of the happening events? What's, uh, you know, what is, um, 
what it, what it, what are the sort of analysis do we see in terms of uh, minor spend um, and transaction fees and the block uh, block subsidy? So it, it was kind of a beast to write, um, and and I think something that a lot of people don't get is like this isn't just about Bitcoin security; it's about the issuance schedule as well, and it's it's doing both of those, and it's also Bitcoin's viral loop. It's uh, essentially how Satoshi thought that people might be interested in it. And I, I like this quote from Satoshi where he goes, as the number of users grow, as the number of users grows, the, the value per coin increases. It has the potential for a positive feedback loop. As users increase, the value goes up, which could attract more users to take advantage of the increase in value. And so the happening events, you know, if you were an engineer and you were to go build Bitcoin today, you'd probably have a smooth uh, issuance schedule instead of the happening events where every four years there's a hard you know, supply shock. Satoshi did that on purpose because when you have same, the same demand chasing half of the coin being issued per block, that naturally has a price increase. And that price increase, as Satoshi just said, has the potential to pull more people in as awareness of Bitcoin increases. Bitcoin's value had stayed a dollar. I'm certain none of us would be talk, talking about it right now. It's because of those bubbles that a lot of us first heard about it. And then we heard, some of us heard about it and then we read about it. And some of us who read about it then bought it. And some of us who bought it really got into it and told our other friends about it. And so we have to keep in mind that the happening like, is essentially like an organic trade-off. Um, so, you know, what happens here is like over the long term, an organic trade-off occurs. As network effects become larger, demand for block space increases, thus decreasing the need for a block subsidy. And I think a lot of people don't appreciate that. Um, they kind of look at, like, they kind of divorce the two of, like, the supply issuance and um, security without realizing, like, the two are very, very intricately combined. I mean, I, th I think, like, the way that you break this stuff down in your article, which is Bitcoin security is fine, is... Uh, it is it is really deep, and it made me think of a lot of different fa like game theoretical factors that are in Bitcoin that make it really anti fragile. And one of them that really comes to mind is let's say that there's an example where the hash uh, or the difficulty is really high, but for whatever reason a lot of miners go offline. Um, then all of a sudden the block, it, it takes a lot longer to find a block because there's just not enough hash rate uh, to keep up with the really high difficulty. Um, but what effectively that does is it makes um, block space even more scarce and expensive. And then people start upvoting, uh, you know, how much, uh, how big of a fee they put into their transaction, depending on how bad they want to get into the next block. And that in itself incentivizes people to work on uh, putting more power onto the network in order to get those uh, increased fees. So you really, you know, in many different ways, kind of showed that in areas of uh, in areas of adversity, Bitcoin is still anti-fragile and actually thrives regardless. Yeah, yeah, that that's around the security stability. Like in the future, you know, hyper Bitcoinization. If there's fluctuations in the in the essentially the transaction fees, because a lot of the transaction we've seen a cyclical pattern with our transact with transaction fees currently, where Transaction fees as a, as a percentage of market cap increase dramatically during the bull runs and then decreases quite a bit during the bear. But we do see those kind of levels stepping up and, and building floors of demand. Um, but yeah, the, the concern would be like if in a transaction fee only security model, those bull bear cycles will sort of, uh, you know, there'll be, there'll be a concern that there's a fluctuation. But yeah, you're right. There's if 
business, you know, essentially people will bid up at that block space in order to incentivize miners to come and mine on it. Um, if, you know, Bitcoin is purpose built, you know, especially if you look at like how proof of work, uh, you know, the proof of work, it's really one proof of work chain kind of dominates in terms of security, in terms of hash rate. Um, you know, Satoshi, I think, summed it up well, where he's like, either there's going to be a lot of transactions or there won't be any. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> he's right. Like, Bitcoin has to become, you know, if Bitcoin becomes the world reserve currency, then there's going to be plenty of transactions. Um, not not super worried about that. Even, and then I think as well, like, we're not going to see these huge bull, bull bear cycles. If Bitcoin does achieve its purpose and hyper-Bitcoinization occurs and Bitcoin's at 100 trillion market cap, um, it, it's so critical to the entire economy that we won't really see bull bear markets anymore with Bitcoin. It would be more of like your grandkids will be like, cool, dad, you have, you have Bitcoin. Great. So does everyone. It's really fucking boring. <laughs> it's like gold. You know, it's like, cool. It's like the most underperforming asset of the year <laughs> because it's like, <laughs> you know, it's like the gold. It's not, uh, it's not like a high performing equity, you know? So in the future, when it's the world reserve currency, then it'll simply Transactions will always occur, no matter if it's a a macro bull or bear market. Bitcoin will just be kind of the core underlying fundamental value transfer component. So, I, in I a world think, like this, go for it. Yeah, that, that's where I don't see the transaction fees fluctuating as much as we do now. I don't think the cycles will be as. In, I don't think we'll really see those bull bear cycles again for Bitcoin in like the year twenty one hundred. So, in a in a world where Bitcoin has like a hundred trillion dollar market cap. Um, a transaction fee is going to be really, really expensive, at least on the main chain, right? And so, like, how do you see? Because um, I, I would envision there's some amount of like packaging that's done where, like, a, uh, in order to be more efficient, uh, somebody like Coinbase packages up all the transactions and and uh, sends them out en masse. Or uh, we've probably graduated to this point of like J.P. Morgan or some of the big banks. What what kind of transactions do you think actually make it into the main chain and and why? Or is that just like way too distant into the future in order to 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 guesstimate? Yeah, well, you know, this is where I get really annoyed when people champion, uh, you know, using Bitcoin for coffee payments because I'm like, we're continually setting bad expectations. Um, those expectations mm-hmm. were so poorly set that there that there was a civil war. And many in the media still think of Bitcoin as just being used for pizza and fucking video games and stuff. And it, it's clearly a gold 2.0. It's not very useful as a coffee payment method. And Lightning do, does bring about better, you know, user experience and, and helps with the fees. Um, but inherently, Bitcoin through its volatility will not be a good. You know, if the volatility is higher than someone's local fiat, they're not going to use it for those like everyday payments. Um, and around like what's the price elasticity or like what price it, you know what's the cost per transaction or you know what does that look like in a fee only market? I used a model to where we took and actually made it available to anyone who wanted to play around with it. Uh, essentially, over 120 years, how do we model this out, right? And so we take and this is all in current U.S. dollar purchasing power. So we take the hyper Bitcoinization market cap, let's say 10 trillion or 100 trillion, then we multiply it by the 0.365 percent which is what we're seeing transaction fees as a percentage of the market cap trending to. And that gives us the total minor annual revenue. And then we can divide that by the number of transactions in a year. And that gives us a ballpark estimate as to what the uh, median transaction fee might be. So um, that's where with the model at 10 trillion, we're looking at $8 a transaction. 
Um, and, and of course, there's a ton of caveats here, which I'll jump into in a second. And then at 100 trillion, we're looking at $80 transactions. Um, and there's a whole section where I, I went through and highlighted the price elasticity of different transactors. Um, like who would who would be willing to pay an $80 fee for Bitcoin? Uh, and we can look at, there's a lot of different ways to look at this, but I think there's, I think these are some of the better ways, which is let's look at other stores of value and how much it costs, costs to transfer those. Um, you know, why our fees are between like 30 and $80 in the United States. People willingly pay that every single day. That's well within the range of our... But there's also no competition for that. So that could come down. Sure. But we're just talking about someone's individual like price sensitivity. Like would they be willing oh, to yeah, pay okay. it? And they do. Yeah. In the future, people may not be willing to pay as much, but, you know, so and there's other ones as well, like offshore banking. Uh, it costs between $2,000 and $4,000 to set up an offshore bank, bank account. Um, real estate transactions. I'm sure. I'm not sure if you guys actually own a home or not, but you know, you have like closing costs. Definitely and, not. Uh, <laughs> I live in San Francisco, so yeah, definitely not either. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, like you know, Chinese buy thirty billion dollars of U.S. real estate annually, and they spend four hundred thirty thousand dollars on average on each purchase, and they pay a certain percentage of that in closing costs. So. You know, that's in the thousands of dollars. So the price elasticity to store their value in U.S. property, they're willing to pay thousands of dollars just to do that transaction. Um, and you also have like physical gold delivery. I mean, good, you know, when, you, when you buy gold, you've got to have like insurance. You might have to have verified shipping, physical pickup. Um, you know, there might have to be guys with guns around. Um, you know, we're looking at like 10 to $100 minimum for any set, you know, for most like a substantial gold Um a, you know, substantial, like uh, moving a substantial amount of gold. Same with like, uh, with, um, Bundesbank when they moved their 300 metric tons of gold from the New York fed, it took three years and it cost $5 million. So let's put it this way for digital gold. People are more than willing to pay between eight and $80 in 120 years. I think that's pretty reasonable. Yeah. I, I subscribe to that. I don't have any big qualms with that. My only, my only qualm is that, uh, it might get some portion of the population might get relegated to the second layer of Bitcoin rather than having the financial capacity to operate on the base train. And that, that makes me a little bit sad, but I mean, it's a other bit, things it's a make me sadder. Not to be rude, but it's a bit of virtue signaling. Um, people look well no like uh, so, so eight between eight and eighty dollars is what a lot of people in a lot of countries make all of their lives and if, if yeah but if their gdp is first... their gdp is fucking peanuts compared to the rest of the world i don't give a shit about cambodia like cool their population has a dollar a day great i don't care they're a tiny tiny fraction of the world economy the real world economy but we're trying to make a global financial system we are and they're free to purchase bitcoin they're free to use it I'm not here to go, you know, virtue signal that a poor, like, Indo, you know, someone in a rice farmer can't can't buy Bitcoin because the fees are too high a hundred years from now. They made their life a better place because of it being gold 2.0. Their government can't spend as much as they used to because now they're beholden to the Bitcoin standard. That makes their life valuable, even if they, the hypothetical situation of a poor rice farmer can't afford a transaction on layer one. Um, which I, I still think is, is more virtue signaling than it is like an actual issue. Okay. I, I, I see your point about how Bitcoin could improve their lives indirectly, but that's also hypothetical. We don't, we don't know about that outcome yet. I, 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 I'm not prepared to say that's not going to happen, but 
it's it, it's it's not guaranteed. In hyper Bitcoinization, government and, and governments have the highest debt to GDP ratio they've ever had since like world uh, right up until World War II. And the outcome mm-hmm. is clear over the next couple of decades. Governments will have to print money. People will seek to preserve their value somewhere. And Bitcoin is a very good, very good place to do that. Um, and Bitcoin makes governments honest again. Whereas like we were in a situation before pre-Bitcoin where the U.S. started to go after like tax havens like Switzerland and there wasn't really any place left for like value to go that wasn't under the control of governments. And so Bitcoin makes governments more honest. It gives people the freedom to move their money into an asset that can't be seized or is very, very hard to seize. Um, that's huge. And that impacts everyone across the whole world. So it impacts every single person. Uh, that, of course, is if Bitcoin survives and, and thrives. Yeah, th- that's real. But in and I'm not not debating that. Um I would just in in a world where if we could figure out how to enable everyone to transact on the main chain, if that is possible, I think it's worth striving for at the very least. The, the Bitcoin double standard: fees are too low, we won't have enough security spend. Fees are too high. How about my poor rice farmers? It's like a no-win situation to give them Bitcoiners here. Yeah, and why is because it creates equality of opportunity. So no matter where you are in the world, you have the free to. F- access to the same amount of infrastructure that anybody else does in the rest of the world. That's important to me. Yeah. And no one's disagreeing that disagreeing with that. I think like it's hard to, you know, if you give it a double standard, then it's kind of like impossible to make you happy. Well, that's why I'm gunning for sharding and proof of stake. <laughs> sure. But the security spend but, has to, well, I mean, yeah, proof it. <laughs> okay. That's like a whole separate topic, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> A, se- a separate day, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, it's like a separate afternoon. <laughs> All right, Dan, we do have to appreciate you coming on uh, the, the the podcast. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I ran into my friend Amin Soleimani, and he said that uh, I should be a little bit more controversial. And so you you were the first uh, guest on the podcast where I got to put that into practice. So, uh, you know, th- thanks for coming on and, and bearing with me there. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. And I think this is the best way for us to kind of go forward in the space is just debate it with others. And you know, mm-hmm. I, and we, we can sharpen each other and, and hopefully kind of Absolutely. come out and have, have learned something new. Cheers to that. That's what POV Crypto is for. Yep. Dan, for those who don't know you, where can they find you? Who do you want to hear from? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at uh, Dan Held. Um, my Twitter name is Dan Heddle. <laughs> um, or you can... Uh, <laughs> Or you can uh, check out my website, danheld.com. Uh, if you're interested in our product, it's interchangehq.com. And Dan, you have a, an extensive medium. Uh, I'm I'm also a person that tries to write a lot on medium. And so when I come across another one, uh, your, your writing is very coherent and, and really distills information down into good metaphors. And uh, that's actually kind of how I got into this space. Um, shout out to Andreas Antonopoulos for, for being able to communicate the value of of that ability and you also have that ability as well uh and so we, we need more people like you to be able to write like you do so people can actually comprehend this shit so hat tip to you sir i really appreciate you saying that it's uh, i think it's kind of a duty i felt like i, I was in a unique position to start writing and, and help other people come to the same realizations that i came to and it uh, definitely helps me also refine how i think through things when i have to teach it so it's been it's been a fun journey Cheers. I have to second David. I, I definitely love the writing too. And uh, I've, I've definitely learned a lot about Bitcoin from you. So thank you and an honor to have you on the show. 
Thanks for having me, guys. This was, this was a lot of fun. You can find the podcast at POV Crypto Pod. You can find me at Trustless State. All you Bitcoiners, you can come tell me how dumb I am. Uh, Christian, where they can find you? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at CK underscore Snarks. Five star reviews. Come see Dan Held live at Bitcoin 2019 in San Francisco next month. POV 15 for 25% off. Will you?